Welcome everyone to episode 8 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and I hope that everyone had a great Thanksgiving last week. Our Facebook group is still growing at just over 400 people, and I would love to see it get to 500 before the end of the year. While we're at it, let's make sure to share this podcast with all of your friends and family. We're at just over 600 total plays, and it would be amazing to hit 1,000 total plays by the end of the year. Now let's move on to the stories. Make sure you lock those doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story is a little intense. It features kidnapping, rape, murder, and suicide. So listener discretion is advised. Ariel Castro was born on July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico. His parents got divorced at a young age and he moved with his mother and three siblings to Reading, Pennsylvania. They then later moved to Cleveland, Ohio where his father and the rest of his half-brothers and sisters live. Castro would meet his girlfriend, Grimelda, when his family moved into a home across the street from her in the 1980s. They would end up living with both sets of parents, but eventually move into their own home in 1992. Once moved into the home, Grimelda's sister would report that all hell broke loose. Castro violently beat his girlfriend, breaking her nose, ribs, and arms. He also threw her down a flight of stairs, cracking her skull and causing a blood clot to form in her brain that resulted in an inoperable tumor. In 1993, he was arrested for domestic violence, but he was not indicted by the grand jury. In 1996, Grimelda finally moved out of the house with the help from the Cleveland Police Department and she got full custody of her four children. Over the next few years, Castro would constantly harass his ex. He would threaten her, beat her, and even kidnap his daughters from her. The courts would issue a temporary restraining order, but it would be lifted only a few months later. She would then die in 2012 over complications from her brain tumor. Before his arrest for the kidnappings, Castro would work as a school bus driver until he was fired for, quote, bad judgment. He would make improper U-turns with children on the bus. He used the school bus to go grocery shopping 
He would leave a child on the bus while going on his lunch break and for leaving the bus unattended while taking a nap at his home. On August 22, 2002, Castro began his kidnappings. He approached 21-year-old Michelle Knight as she was heading to an appointment and offered her a ride. Knight knew Castro's oldest daughter, so she didn't think anything of accepting his polite offer for a ride to her appointment. Once inside his car, he drove her to his house and lured her inside. Once inside, he dragged her to the basement and chained her up. Less than a year later, on April 21, 2003, Castro would approach 17-year-old Amanda Berry as she walked home from work. Berry was also friends with another of Castro's daughters and offered her a ride to his house to see her friend, but sadly she would never meet up with her. Amanda was dragged to the basement and chained up next to Michelle, still held captive. Another year later, on April 4, 2004, Gina De Jesus was last seen at a payphone as she walked home from school around 3 p.m. Castro pulled over to offer her a ride home because she was yet again friends with one of Castro's daughters. She got into the car without question because she knew him as her friend's dad and didn't think she had anything to worry about. Sadly, she did. She was taken to Castro's home and chained up with the other two girls still held captive. Michelle would later tell the police that Castro at one point took her upstairs and tied her hands and feet together, then pulled her up using her hands, feet, and neck. He then left her there alone for three days without any food. She said that he kept her locked in a dark room and would only come in to rape her and leave her alone for days until he decided to come and do it all over again. All three girls were kept in bedrooms upstairs, tied up in the dark. They were only fed one meal a day if they were lucky. They had a plastic bucket to use as a toilet and allowed to shower once a week. Michelle would tell the police that Castro had impregnated her at least five times but forcing miscarriages by beating and starving and treating her worse than an animal. Michelle's grandmother would tell reporters that she needed facial reconstructive surgery after her escape. According to a statement made by the Cleveland Police Department, Castro was only contacted one time after the kidnappings on an unrelated incident. He didn't appear to be home and was later interviewed at a different location. Neighbors claimed to have called the police during the time the girls were held captive due to, quote, suspicious activity, but they claimed to have no records of any calls or reports. Castro's son, Anthony, would tell the police that there were certain parts of the house that were inaccessible due to being locked. He also mentioned a conversation about three weeks before the girls escaped where Castro would ask his son if he thought if Michelle Knight would ever be found. Anthony said that he told Castro that she was likely dead, and Castro simply replied, quote, Really? You think so? On May 6, 2013, ten years after being kidnapped, 
Amanda Berry was finally able to make contact with one of Castro's neighbors, who helped her escape with her six-year-old daughter that was conceived and born into her mother's captivity. According to the police, Castro had left that day, and Amanda had noticed that he didn't lock the big inside door, but the outside storm door had been bolted shut from the outside. She didn't attempt to break through the outer door because she thought that she was being tested. Castro had tested the women before by leaving the house partially unlocked and then beating them mercilessly when they would try and escape. So once she opened the unlocked inner door, she yelled until one of the neighbors heard her and called the police. Castro was arrested on May 6, 2013. He was charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape on May 8th, which carry a prison sentence of 10 years to life in Ohio. Two of Castro's brothers were also initially taken into custody, but released on May 9th after police announced that they had no involvement in the kidnappings. Castro made his first court appearance at the Cleveland Municipal Court on May 9th, where bail was set at $2 million per kidnapping charge, adding to a total of $8 million. Prosecutors intended to seek the death penalty against Castro. Additional charges were reported to be pending, including aggravated murder for intentional induction of miscarriages, attempted murder, assault, a charge for each instance of rape, and a kidnapping charge for each day each captive was held. On May 14th, Castro's attorney said he would plead not guilty to all charges if indicted for kidnapping and rape. The grand jury would return a true bill of indictment against Castro on June 7th. It contained 329 counts, including two counts of aggravated murder under different sections of the Ohio Criminal Code for his role in the termination of one of the women's pregnancies. The indictments covered only the period from August 2002 to February 2007. The county prosecutor stated that the investigation was ongoing and that any further findings would be presented to the grand jury. After entering a not guilty plea for Castro on June 12th, one of his attorneys said that although some of the charges against Castro were indisputable, it is our hope that we can continue to work toward a resolution to avoid having an unnecessary trial about aggravated murder and the death penalty. He noted, we are very sensitive to the emotional strain and impact that a trial would have on the women, their families, and this community. Castro was found competent to stand trial on July 3rd. On July 12th, the county grand jury returned a true bill of indictment for the remainder of the period after February 2007. It brought the total to 977 counts, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 of rape, 7 of gross sexual imposition, 6 of felonious assault, three of child endangerment, two of aggravated murder, and one of possession of criminal tools. On July 17th, Castro pleaded not guilty to the expanded indictment. He faced a death by lethal injection if convicted on all of the charges. 
Castro pled guilty on July 26th to 937 of the 977 charges against him, including charges of kidnapping, rape, and aggravated murder as part of a plea bargain which called for consecutive sentences of life in prison plus 1,000 years, all without parole. Under the plea deal, Castro forfeited his right to appeal and could not profit in any way due to his crimes. He also forfeited his assets, including his home, which prosecutors said would be demolished. Castro was told by the County Common Pleas Court Judge Michael Russo, you will not be getting out. Is this clear? To which Castro responded, I do understand that, Your Honor. Castro also made comments about his addiction to pornography and, quote, sexual problem, but was cut off by Judge Russo, who said such issues could be discussed at the August 1st sentencing hearing. A law firm representing Barry, DeJesus, and Knight released a statement that the three women were relieved by today's plea. They are satisfied by the resolution to the case and are looking forward to having these legal proceedings draw to a final close in the very near future. At the sentencing hearing on August 1st, Castro was sentenced to consecutive life terms in prison plus 1,000 years, all without any possibility of parole. He was also fined $100,000. He also forfeited all of his property and assets to the county government before his sentencing. Castro aggressed the court for nearly 20 minutes, in which he would say that he was a good person and not a monster, but that he was addicted to sex and pornography, and had, quote, practiced the art of masturbation from a young age. He claimed that he had never beaten or tortured the women, and insisted that most of the sex that he had with them was, quote, consensual. He shifted between apologizing and blaming the FBI for failing to catch him, as well as blaming his victims themselves for getting in a car with a stranger, along with insisting to the court that when he had sex with them, he discovered that they were not virgins. He would alternately shift back into apologetic comments, saying, quote, I hope they can find it in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony going on in that home. The sentencing judge also heard from Knight and family members of Barry and DeJesus. Knight told Castro, You took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on. You will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. On September 3rd, 2013, Castro was found hanging from a bedsheet in his cell only one month into his life sentence. Prison staff performed CPR on him before he was taken to the Ohio State University Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio, where he was pronounced dead shortly after. Normally, I would say that suicide isn't the answer, but from what this man did, I'm glad that he is no longer on this planet and a burden to anyone or can cause harm to anyone else.
good riddance. For our next story, I've decided to branch out of Ohio for some of the stories that I tell, because I don't want to burn through all of the Ohio stories too quickly. So I found a pretty creepy haunted house story from Tennessee. I'll be reading it from the perspective of the storyteller. My husband Alan and I bought an old house outside of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We had to beg, borrow, and nearly steal enough money to buy the property and hire the contractors to get the house habitable. We knew nothing of the history of the house other than the fact that it hadn't been lived in since the early 1900s. The house was two-story and had obviously experienced major renovations. The front of the house was older and of a completely different architectural style than the rear. There was no animal life on the property. It was on five acres, 14 miles northeast of Murfreesboro. This part of Tennessee is lousy with all manner of wildlife. Coyotes, raccoons, possum, and deer in particular. There was a constant stream across the back of the property with easy access. There was no reason why we shouldn't have seen animals on a regular basis. There weren't even tracks at the stream. We didn't even have birds on the property. The team working for the contractor reported that they constantly felt like they were being watched. As time wore on, the workers began to complain their tools were coming up missing, only to be found later, always inside the house. Through all of this, We had never actually gone upstairs to the second story. There was one stairwell behind a very heavy wooden door. Try as we might, but we couldn't get the door open. The only thing we could do would be to ruin the door by taking it off the hinges. But for some reason, this was unacceptable to me. A friend of ours, Scott, who was helping us with what work we could do ourselves to save on repair costs, climbed a ladder and looked down through the window into the stairwell. He saw a couch and several rolls of carpet leaned against the door, blocking it. When the workers were done with the main floor, Alan, Scott, and I were to finish off the remaining work. This was mainly painting the walls and baseboards. We were almost done. Alan and Scott left to go to the hardware store and to get dinner for the three of us. They would be gone for about two hours. I had the last baseboard left, then planned on taking a well-earned hot bath before the guys got back home. I wrapped up my work, went to the bath, and ran the water from my shower. The last thing I remember was sitting on the bed and lying back for a moment. The next thing I know... Alan was waking me up. I guess I had been sound asleep. I vaguely remembered running the water from my bath. Alan mentioned something about the water still being hot, so I must have just run the bath. This sort of confused me because I'd started the bath well over an hour before. The water should have been cold by then. I didn't remember even turning the water off. I shook off the sense of confusion because I was struggling so much to try to wake up. I sat down at the table with the guys. They'd grabbed KFC for the three of us. I realized then I still had my gloves on from painting the baseboard. I slipped the gloves off, not even bothering to wash my hands. 
I remember being famished. I was starving and felt, for a lack of better description, drunk. I just loaded my plate with dinner when something caught my eye. My wedding rings were missing. I can count on one hand the number of times I've ever taken my rings off. They're not anything special, nothing gaudy. It's just that they're my wedding rings. I rarely wear much in the way of jewelry. It's just not my style. The sentimental attachment I have to them is so important to me, and they were gone. At first, I thought Alan and Scott were playing a joke on me. For minutes, I believed they were pranking me. When they finally convinced me that they had nothing to do with it, we began searching the house. The three of us spent over an hour tearing up the first floor trying to find them. We had no luck. I spent the next several weeks constantly on the lookout for my rings with no success. Alan only mentioned buying me a new set. Aside from the fact that we didn't really have the money for it, I refused to give up on finding my rings. All during this time, I began to feel a constant presence in the house. Alan said he never felt anything. Scott, our friend, who was very attuned spiritually, said he also sensed a presence, but only briefly, and then it would go away. After a couple of months, Alan and I finally managed to build our nest egg back up to begin working on the upstairs. I still insisted that we not damage the door, so Scott and Alan went back up the ladder, slipped in through the window in the stairwell, and dropped it. The two of them moved the couch and carpet rolls aside allowing us to open the door. Scott's wife, Alex, was there with me, helping me open the door. The four of us went up the stairs and began exploring the second floor. We had to be careful as much of the flooring was rotted. We each sort of went our own way. The rooms were covered in dust, dirt, and cobwebs. What light there was came in as sunlight through the windows. After a few minutes, I heard Scott call for us. The room he was exploring was down the hall, around the bend and at the end of another short hallway. He was standing in front of a bureau, basically a fancy desk with several small drawers. One of the drawers had been pulled open. He looked at me and told me to look inside. My wedding rings were in the drawer sitting on top of a dingy old journal wrapped in a ribbon that was probably read a long time ago. I accused him of doing this, again saying he was pranking me. Alan and Scott's wife, Alex, finally convinced me Scott would never do such a thing. But what other explanation could there be? The workers we hired to repair the upstairs reported the same sort of incidences the previous workers had. They claimed to feel like someone was always watching them. Tools would come up missing, but would always be found on the main floor. For his part, Alan began to get impatient with all of this going on. He insisted there was nothing going on except for overactive imagination. Even when the work was done, Alan was feeling more and more upset on the subject. By then, I had a constant sense of someone watching me. If I brought the subject up, Alan would get angry with me. Our entire life savings was tied up in the house. I was the one that initially wanted the house more than him, and now that we had it, I was the one who was constantly complaining. 
got to the point I wouldn't even bring up the subject to him anymore. Over the next year, I began to feel more and more alone and isolated. I wasn't getting enough sleep, and I would nap often during the day. When I would nap, I would have intense dreams that I wouldn't remember when I woke up. The only thing I could remember was that someone or something was touching me. Over time, these feelings became more and more intense. I would wake up from one of these naps and find that my clothes had been moved or altered. Since I worked from home, I could dress casually, usually jeans and a t-shirt. When I would wake up from one of these intense dreams, I would find my t-shirt lifted to my shoulders and my jeans opened. Sometimes my panties were pulled down with my jeans. My energy level was at a constant low. I couldn't talk to my own husband about any of this. I was spending my days just going through the motions. The dividing line was the night. I am convinced that I was raped by whatever was in the house. It was night. Alan and I were in bed. He was sound asleep. I was watching TV, basically zoned out and barely aware of whatever show I was watching. I heard footsteps coming down the hallway. I was accustomed to this. I was so worn down by all of it that it no longer bothered me. The footsteps stopped at the door like they always did. As always, I expected to hear the footsteps walk away, as though someone was walking away from the door. That didn't happen this time. The door to our bedroom began to slowly open. I heard steps entering our bedroom and stopped by the bed. This time, because this had never happened before, I was focused wide-eyed at the space by my bed. I was suddenly frightened. This had never, ever happened before. I reached over to shake Alan to wake him up. He didn't budge. He was out cold. I whispered his name, begging him to wake up and help me. He wasn't snoring, he just wouldn't wake up. The sound I heard was something between a growl and a chuckle. I wasn't alone, and whatever it was, it was laughing at me. The cover slowly slid down my body and off the bed. Alan still didn't wake up. I wear sweats and a tank top to bed. I felt a hand tugging at my sweatpants, pulling them down. I punched Alan, yelling at him to wake up. Nothing happened. I tried to roll off the bed to get up, to get away. I felt a hand at my throat, slamming me against my headboard. My sweatpants were pulled off and something grabbed my left ankle and pulled me down, forcing me on my back on the bed. Whatever assaulted me marked me up. The pain of the attack was nothing like I had ever experienced before in my life. It wouldn't stop. I felt a clawed hand at my throat, holding me in place. The other hand alternated between squeezing my breasts, raking its claws over my stomach, and occasionally was playing with my wedding rings, twirling them around my finger. At one point, I felt it tugging at them. I passed out at some point, and the pain was that bad. When I woke up, I was lying naked on the bed. Some oily substance covered me from my inner thighs to my crotch. 
I had scratches on my face, hands, fingers, legs, chest, shoulders, and over my stomach. My legs were draped over the edge of the bed, nearly touching the floor. Alan was still sound asleep. We had several guns in the house for home defense. I'm not saying I was thinking remotely clearly, but I grabbed my 9mm from my nightstand and ran to the office nook off the den. I can't tell you why, but I felt safe there. I guess because nothing ever happened to me when I was there. I finally fell asleep. Alan woke me up when he was leaving for work. All he could say to me was to ask why I tore the bed up. I literally sat there just blinking at him. During the day, whenever I felt at all that something might be happening, I would run to my office nook. Even when I didn't feel like something was going on, I stayed in the nook all I could. The longest time I was away from my safe place was when I showered. I kept scrubbing myself, scouring my inner thighs and crotch. Even when I'd wash away the goo, I could still feel it. When it was time for Alan to come home, I ran out of the house and waited for him by the driveway. We were going to have a talk about what had happened to me. I didn't imagine it. It wasn't a bad dream or even a nightmare. It wasn't some messed up wet dream. Someone or something was in the house, and it had raped me. I needed my husband to believe me and help me. He blew me off and told me it was my imagination. I asked him to explain the scratches on my body, going so far as to jerk my t-shirt up to show them to him. He said they were all self-inflicted. When I grabbed his arm and demanded he pay attention to me, wheeled and glared at me in a way he had never done before. Like all married couples, we've had our arguments. They'd never gotten physical. But Alan had a temper, and I knew what it looked like. This was exponentially worse. I swear he looked at me like he was ready to kill me. All he would say was that I needed to get over whatever horny dream I was having and leave him the hell alone. He yanked his arm away from me and marched into the house. I had never felt so alone and abandoned in my entire life. Nothing happened over the next several nights. On the sixth night after my rape, I heard the footsteps again. I grabbed my pistol, knowing full well it was useless, but I grabbed it anyway and ran to the nook. I could still hear the footsteps, but nothing happened. The same thing happened the next night, and again, I ran to the nook. If it's possible to sense frustration and anger, it was virtually palpable. Whenever, whatever this was, was angry with me. Nothing happened the eighth night after my attack. Alan had gotten into the habit of not even waking me up when he left, whether I was in bed or in the nook. I had a bunch of errands to run that day. So I woke up with Alan already gone. I was so pissed that he was ignoring me, and it was very much affecting our marriage. Our plan was always to get the house, save up our money, then start a family. I could still work from home, even with a baby, so things should have been going according to schedule. The problem was, Alan and I weren't having sex. At all. That had never been an issue before. 
We were always so active sexually when we were dating and when we first got married. Since we moved to the house, the frequency was getting less and less. By the point of my attack, it had been months since we'd even been interested. I got in the shower and started scheduling my daily itinerary. I never heard the footsteps. I never knew the danger I was in until it was too late. The shower curtain jerked aside. Before I knew what was happening, I felt a clawed hand at my throat slamming me against the shower wall. I hit the wall so hard it knocked my breath out. The clawed hands pinned my wrists above my head. I was raped a second time. The pain was just as bad, but this time I wasn't lucky enough to pass out. That's how I looked at it anyway. The difference this time was that I smelled its breath or what I assumed was its breath. It was so awful, I can only describe it as noxious. It made no sound while it was assaulting me, but again, it played with my wedding rings. There was no sound until it was done. I collapsed into the tub when it was finished and let me drop. I swear I could hear it laughing. When I could finally collect myself, I barely took the time to get dressed and fled the house. When I felt like I was far enough away from the house to be safe, I pulled over and started crying. I couldn't stop. Some people took mercy on me, came over to me to see if I was okay. I just told them that I was fine. I couldn't talk to Alan because he didn't believe me or even seemed to care. I had been progressively cut off from my friends desperately needed someone to talk to. With no other option, I called Alex at work. She left work to come to basically rescue me. That's what it felt like anyways. We met at a park where we could talk without being interrupted. I told her everything. I left nothing out. I suddenly realized just how crazy my story sounded. I felt like an idiot. Alex was just the best. She didn't interrupt me. She had plenty of tissues ready for me, and she just listened. When I was done, she said we were going back to the house just long enough for me to collect a few things, and she was taking me to her house. I dreaded walking back into the house. Even Alex said she'd never felt so much anger or aggression. I was there long enough to throw some things in a bag, and we left. Alex wouldn't leave me alone for even a moment. We didn't talk. We didn't say one word. I called Alan from my cell phone after we left. I told him what I was doing, where I was going, and why. He had a fit. He yelled and screamed so loud, Alex could hear him clearly. I was so embarrassed. I was having a nervous breakdown. When he was done yelling at me, he hung up on me. I cried for the rest of the night. Unbeknownst to me, Alan called Scott and yelled at him because Alex, Scott's wife, was interfering in his marriage. Bless his heart, Scott knew something about it and took a verbal chewing for me. Alex insisted I tell Scott everything when he finally got home. Scott was just as patient with me as Alex had been. When I was done, Scott said I wasn't to go back to the house until he checked it out. Alan could just get over his damn self, per Scott. 
this was Alan's friend. First things first, Scott began to dig into the history of the property. He wasn't going back to the house until he had some sense of what he was walking into. When he was done with that, Scott went to the house, but he didn't go in. He was there for Alan. My husband put up a massive fuss, but Scott finally convinced him to stay with him and Alex just for a couple nights. It was the weekend, so work wasn't going to be a problem. Alan changed almost immediately. The first night at Scott and Alex's house, he slept for 10 hours easily. I probably slept longer. When he woke up, he acted like he had just had his first real night of sleep in months. It took a couple of days, but Alan and I started talking. Alan wasn't still sure what to believe, but at least he was listening to me. I was crying a lot around this time. It just felt like such a weight was being taken off of my shoulders. Scott then finally wrapped up his investigation into the property's history. Briefly, the original house had been built in 1850, about 11 years before the Civil War. Murfreesboro was the site of a major Civil War battle, the Battle for Stones River. Just prior to the battle, there had been similar skirmishes. It was during one of these skirmishes that four Union soldiers deserted their unit. They came upon a family to the south and west of Nashville. They raped the owner's wife and killed the family. Their unit commander discovered what they had done and immediately placed them under arrest. With Stones River upcoming, there wasn't time to have a court-martial just yet. Instead, the company commander ordered one of his officers and two enlisted men to escort the prisoners back to Nashville. When the weather turned ugly, the officer came upon the house. Our house. He arranged with the owner to keep the prisoners in the barn and they would wait out the winter storm. The weather kept up, so the officer sent one of his men to Nashville to notify Corpse Command where they were and why they were there. The next day, area residents reported the house, our house, as well as the barn, was burned down. The family and all the Union soldiers were dead. The Union closed the case as all involved were dead. Scott speculated that any number of things could have occurred. The prisoners got loose, killed their captors, attacked the family, and burned the house down. There was something to this as all four prisoners were found inside the house, not in the barn. The officer and other guard were found in the barn, also burned to death. The owner, known to be friendly to the Confederacy, killed the officer and guard and the prisoners got loose. Unlikely, but possible. Local citizens, also friendly to the Confederate cause, attacked the house and killed everyone in an effort to kill the Union soldiers. Scott knew an empath, Lee, who was willing to do an on-site investigation with him two weeks later. If I have to mention it, we were still staying with Scott and Alex. What Scott and Lee were able to deduce was even worse than he had originally speculated. There were only two spirits in the house. Anna Rose Hastings, the wife of the owner, and her only child, 
her son, Hiram. Hiram had virtual free run of the house and attacked Lee several times. Per Lee, Hiram was afraid of Scott and cursed her wherever Scott was interfering with him. Anna Rose, Hiram's mother, was chiefly located in my office nook. Hiram was the spirit who attacked me. His mother, Anna Rose, protected me whenever she could. Hiram was so much more powerful than his mother. Anna Rose finally relented and told Lee what happened. Hiram had been hanging out with the prisoners. He was 16 years old at the time. Somehow, Anna Rose wasn't sure, Hiram freed them and helped them kill their captors. Hiram was going to run away with the prisoners. They wanted to go into the house to finish waiting out the storm, grab enough supplies for their journey, and then they would leave. Hiram's father, Cyrus, got into a fight with the prisoners. He killed two of them. Cyrus then grabbed his belt and began beating Hiram for his actions. The other two prisoners turned on Cyrus and killed him as well. Anna Rose sobbed as she told Lee her story. Not only did the two Union prisoners rape her, but Hiram did as well. He killed his mother when he was done with her. Then the prisoners turned on Hiram, knocking him unconscious and setting the house and barn on fire. Somehow the fire spread too quickly and the Union prisoners were caught in the fire and perished. Per Anna Rose, the house sat empty for so long. Only she and Hiram wandered the property. She gave the name Jenkins, no first names, as the next residence. Scott's research indicated the Jenkins family bought and renovated the house in 1879. Spiritualism was popular at the time, and the Jenkins family and friends began invoking spirits, reaching out to the netherworld for contact. This turned Hiram loose once and for all. Anna Rose said Hiram assaulted Mrs. Jenkins and her 15-year-old daughter. The family abandoned the property in 1895. The county seized it for back taxes and it sat empty until 1909. That's when Javier Colonisa bought the property. He tried to renovate it again and wanted to make it a hotel. The effort failed and Colonisa abandoned the property 14 months later. We were the next official residents. Unofficially, both Scott and Lee discovered that in 1975, teens began hanging out there. Satanism was popular among teens, and these were no different. They began holding seances, invoking demonic rites, and holding satanic rituals. Anna Rose claimed it was all she could do to keep the property safe from demonic presence. Hiram was working to invite demons to aid him. Anna Rose blamed herself for what happened to me. She was so afraid of her son and the damage he's already done. Scott has worked with three teams that have cleared properties of poltergeists and demonic possession. They have had mixed success. He got nowhere trying to get Hiram to leave peacefully or otherwise. When he made this attempt, it was the only time Hiram actively engaged with Scott. Seems like it was more out of fear and defense than anything else. Alan had finally had enough. He ultimately agreed to sell the house, 
We basically lost our savings and were wiped out, as we still had bills to pay to a couple of the contractors. Our marriage suffered, and it's still not the same, and at this point, it never will be. We never got around to having kids, largely because I had no interest in having a physical relationship with Ellie. We've even gone as far as separating twice and discussed divorce. We always got back together, but were almost more like friends than husband and wife. The guy who bought the house knows the history. Tennessee has some interesting laws. Among them, if you have a reason to believe that your property might be haunted, you have to disclose it. The buyer actually seemed to like the idea. He had no wife or family, so there's that. I have no idea if he's had issues with the house or not. Alan and I occasionally check to see if the house has been sold or abandoned again, but the buyer is still there. That was definitely a very creepy and intense story, and I'm glad that things seemed to have worked out. They were able to get out of the house and away from it, and I hope that whoever lives there now doesn't experience anything close to what she did. Well, that's it for episode 8. I hope you like the haunted house story, and if you like this kind of thing, please let me know, and I'll include more in future episodes. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. A five-star rating goes a long way to help others find the podcast. Also, make sure to share with your friends and family. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and if you would like to help support the show, you can do so through three different tiers on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, I would like to shout out my newest patron, Greg Hickey. Thank you so much for joining Greg, and thank you, Professor Jacket, for staying on for a second month. Now, with all that being said, thank you everyone for listening. Make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>